Welcome to the Science Witch Podcast, where we explore how science and witchcraft intersect, interact, and affirm one another. I'm your co-host, Angel. And I'm your co-host, Ruby. And this is our 57th episode and our special Yule episode. Yay! Happy Yule, everyone! Also, happy holidays! Happy Solstice! Merry Christmas! Happy belated Hanukkah! Happy Saturnalia! Happy Festivus, the holiday for the rest of us! And we wish you a bright and happy whatever you happen to celebrate at this time of year. Because we here at the Science Witch Podcast embrace all holiday traditions and advocate for a ceasefire in both Gaza and the War on Christmas. And also for this year's holiday episode, we're sharing where Angel got to talk with heathen expert Dara about the winter monsters on the Yuletide season, including Yule Cat, which is featured on our belated holiday cards we're getting sent out. You know, at, mm-hmm. at this point, you could probably make a compilation of every time I say this, but this really was a fun episode to edit, and frankly, I wish I was a fly on the wall to give some input myself. I've gotten a little bit more seasoned. I, I'm, I'm a little less seasoned as a witch than you and Enku, but the third year, me and my partner have celebrated Yule. We've gotten to celebrate Yule together, and we've had a little bit of time to learn about like various traditions, and I gotta say, y'all managed to hit the nail on the head on talking about especially like northern european and germanic traditions without giving too much attention to the sheer amount of right-wing nonsense that gets littered throughout the germanic and especially norse mythologies so good on y'all for doing that without me yeah well dara is one of my favorite people that i've met through the heathen community and as you can tell from the interview she's a very big advocate on inclusive heathenry and also making heathen accessible to anyone who wants to come and follow the path of the Norse gods because it is for anyone and that's one of the things that I really appreciate about her whenever she goes to do speaking engagements about this and also she's become one of my favorite people that I've met here in the heathen community to talk to about heathenry And she's also, of course, a close personal friend who is always a delight to talk to about just about anything, as well as an incredible source of knowledge and information about all things Norse. And that given that winter monsters are, you know, they're kind of having a moment right now, that I thought that I'd bring her on the show and talk about some of the traditions from the North country surrounding the pre-Christian holiday mythos that is also starting to make its way here into the U.S., and is starting to supplant some of the American corporatized holiday traditions like cocaine, Santa, and Rudolph. Oh yeah, even then one thing you guys reminded me of while I was editing was while you guys were talking about gifting to project power and all of that type of stuff, that wasn't really limited to Northern Europe. That was something that was really common amongst various Native American tribes, especially along the Pacific Northwest, as well as among the Iroquois. And mm. like, it wasn't done in the winter, like at Christmas time, at religious festival, kind of how it was done. 
in Europe, but the, you still see it happening quite often. I remember back when I was in college, I had to do an intro to Native American studies class, and one thing discussed was how when a lot of white settlers came into the Pacific Northwest region, they noticed all of this gifting and they were just like what they couldn't wrap their heads around it because it was just this isn't property rights like you guys are giving shit left and right what what the hell do you guys own anything and they're like no well yeah i believe the term in heathenry is called frith and your ability to give gifts to your community is a show of basically your own wealth so you give away your wealth in order to show it off, which I really like. I think we need that a lot more in our society. Yes, absolutely. So without further ado, let's hear our interview for this year's Yule Special with Dara. All right, well... Today, we have a friend, personal friend, and a special guest to come on to talk about our Yule holiday special. So, would you like to introduce ourselves to the listeners? Yeah, thanks, Angel. So, my name is Dara Gray. I'm uh, practicing heathen for about, gosh, 15 years now. I considered myself some flavor of pagan for even longer than that. I think I came out to my mom as a witch when I was like 13. But before that, you know, always very interested in kind of these things that were more hidden or occult back then. Like people didn't talk about them so much, but they seemed really interesting. And so I got into heathenry and eventually that was down in where I lived previously in California, moved up here and became the Oregon steward of the truth. And very excited to be with you here today to talk about Yule Monsters. Yeah, so before we jump into Yule Monsters, can you just touch a little bit about what the troth is in case, you know, anyone out yeah. there was curious? Absolutely. Thank you. So the troth is an inclusive, anti-racist, LGBTQ-friendly, umbrella heathen organization. For those of you who are like heathen and, and aren't quite familiar, that's pagan in the Northern European tradition, basically. It's, it's people who have some flavor of Germanic or Old English or Nordic pagan interest and feel called by the culture, the gods whatever and basically just a place for people you know as we say all who welcome all are welcome so that's the truth and i've been part of it it's really more providing educational resource we do come together a few times a year in kind of national and sometimes international conferences but mostly it's just you know people on the ground being out here and doing stuff and being heathen being ourselves yeah and we are, of course, coming up on one of the big holidays in the heathen calendar, which is pretty similar to our neo-pagan calendar. I found that I tend to celebrate the equinoxes and the solstice with the heathens, whereas the cross quarters, that's Samhain, Beltane, Lunasa, and Imbolc, are more of the Wiccan, I guess, neo-pagan calendar. So yeah, this is a big event. And of course, the great thing about heathens, 
especially during this time of year, is because there's this entire very rich mythos yes. of a uh, holiday or I I don't even want to say Christmas because it's it's Yuletide in in this regard. And you know, one of the things growing up, I liked the holidays, but I never liked the sort of almost just like hostility towards making everything Christian. Because it just doesn't seem like the holidays are like, I guess it's not a holiday that I associate with being in the desert and, you know, celebrating in sort of this idea of what the Middle East, at least in my mind is. It's it's definitely a holiday of snow and trees and not so much desert. And so as I got older and I got exposed to less Christian dominant sort of ideas about what Christmas could be. And also the ideas around the Norse and uh, Northern European holiday mythos, they've become a lot more popular. Yes. And yeah, so our, for our featured holiday theme this year is the Yule Cat. So I thought maybe we could start out with talking about the Yule Cat and what, what exactly is the Yule Cat. Sure. Happy to talk about the Yule Cat. You actually prompted me to do more research into the Yule Cat specifically in Yule Monsters than I'd ever really had reason to do. But you brought up some really fascinating points about the calendar and the season and these elements of, you know, what we see as kind of the overculture, more Christianized holiday that I'd like to address first briefly, if that's okay. So with regard to the calendar, you know, there's this whole big debate in kind of the more academic circles of heathenry that's talking about, well, you know, traditionally it was what they call the lunisolar calendar where you had, it was driven, yes, by the sun and the procession of the sun through what we now know as the solstices and equinoxes, but it was also really heavily driven by the moon and where the moon was at different seasons. And so Yule, there's this consensus, I want to say, among people who talk about the lunisolar calendar that it usually fell on the second full moon after, or like the first full moon after the winter solstice and or second full moon after the winter solstice, which would put us sometime in January in modern day. And, you know, while it makes sense to maybe have feasting in the end of January, because it's a terrible, brutally nasty time of year, like even here, modern day heathens do tend to fall more in line with kind of the pagan wheel of the year. Or, you know, what the dominant overculture is doing with regard to when we celebrate, because really at, at its base, it's about celebrating light and feasting and community with your family and your friends and the people around you. And it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to do that when other people aren't doing it. So we've seen that evolution. The second part is like all those elements that you mentioned, right? So the more Germanic or Northern pagan elements, like that, for instance, the Christmas tree, or putting lights up, you know, it is something where that imagery, you know, Santa Claus lives at the North Pole. He wears a red fur suit and has flying reindeer. That's not very much of the Levant in that. So we have all these things and there's fascinating 
it's really interesting book if you're into that kind of like academic side of things that talks about the Germanization of early medieval Christianity. And to spare everybody the read and, and the TLDR, it's basically that the elements of the cultural practice were so strong that the church really had to rebrand them and give them more of like a Christian context and a Christian meaning and try and overlay Christianity and reinterpret elements of what was already going on because people didn't want to give up what they were doing. It had too much meaning in this really cold, dark, gross time of year to get through it. But first, any before I talk about the Yule Cat, do you have questions about that? Because um yeah, I mean, why do you think it was the Germanic sort of overculture that sort of took over? I think in some ways like capitalism was able to co-opt a lot of the christmas mythos that specifically came out of or do you feel like that is one of the reasons why the overculture has sort of developed this idea of i mean of course that happened in the medieval period before capitalism was really a thing i was gonna say yeah. yeah For sure. No, capitalism will take over anything. Capitalism will eat anything. That's that's its nature. But it did come later. And, you know, I'm not a serious scholar of the late Roman period and the Dark Ages and Mm -hmm. the early medieval period. But what I do know of it, it might be a reasonable, let's say, guess or hypothesis to say that the Roman Empire, right, was more of like the Mediterranean area. It was more of Southern Europe. It had more of like a familiar, not just a familiar, a similar climate, but also that cultural framework of, okay, here's what we're all doing now, right? Yeah. And so it was it was easy for, I think, Christianity to spread as a cult largely among slaves um, mm. and largely among people who were into this sort of new avant-garde religion but the germanic tribes to the north were never really conquered they were never incorporated into the roman empire and so when the missionizing started going up into northern europe i mean there's story after story there's anecdote after anecdote that i'm familiar with of how because like the conversion process is a fascination of mine as well but like of missions that failed like people who were basically uh or cast out by the tribes that they went to convert or they preached and preached and preached but they're like yeah that's a harmless nutcase like they didn't get paid attention to for a long long time necessarily and so in order to make these myths make sense to the these like very strong very culturally resistant peoples they had to tie into more of that context and to an extent we see that with and and it's a different process but we can also see that like here in the americas right where we've got cultural celebrations in catholic mexico and central america or south america that were made part of the church festival even though you're looking at that and you're like that has zero to do with what's in the bible but people do it anyway because it's part of their cultural experience and the church just sort of subsumed all of it under its cloak of legitimacy yeah i guess the the capitalist tie-in of course is that the this holiday that in a lot of ways was adaptive especially in the uh, colder climates where we all have to come together and engender goodwill and you know the yuletide spirit so we didn't kill each other when we're like trapped in these tiny little cold survival situations all winter but then of course that became like giving gifts as a way to engender goodwill and that's the reason we are in the giant consumer holidays we get now (laughs) but initially 
the whole idea of spending time together and feasting and drinking and enjoying your holidays was in part as a way to survive. And yes. I think that's another part of this, you know, heathen mythos of Yuletide mythology is our monsters and such is that there's an element of, yeah, the Krampus brings you gifts, but at the same time, there's always this darker side of it, right? Like with, uh, and I guess this is a good point to bring up Yule Cat and why Yule Cat only seems to hunt people who don't have new clothes. So. Right, right. And this is like this, this fascinating subject that you've brought up and that we're talking about today is why did people have these Yule practices and what's the role of like the Yule cat or other Yule monsters, which I also learned a whole bunch about in the process of researching this. It's like, you know, I think the big thing that it's easy for people to lose track of in an industrialized capitalist society is that prior to modern times when we had all this abundance that and you know you could go to the store or maybe you know your pleasure would cut you off but you knew it would eventually come back you know it's like people were living on the edge their success was determined by the harvest by the hunt on whether or not diseases hit their crops or their animals and what success they might have you know in raiding or trading and it was good to have good years. It was good to have bad years, but like humans everywhere, people in those cultures really were successful by banding together and supporting each other. And so coming together at this cold, dark time of year, you know, you talk about the solstice and like that period of maximum darkness and minimum light, and then the return of the light. But because it's been so dark and cold, you know, the winter is still going on. Being able to come together and share whatever you have, you know, if you have, first, if you have a whole bunch of abundance, it's a great way to say, hey, we've got all this abundance. And sometimes even like it was a status thing, you know, you'd have the chiefs or the big families and they would give these to show off like how well they were doing and how many resources they could command. And that gifting was more of like an obligation relationship. It's like, hey, you can come to my feast and I'll give you gifts and I'll give you food and you can have great fun and like get really full and happy for like three days. But then later on, maybe if we need some men at arms or I need to have my crops brought in or my animals tended or my butter churned, then your family has an obligation to come at another time of year and help me out in return, right? And we see maybe less of that obligatory thing. Uh, but who among us hasn't felt like, oh, God, I'm going to go see the family. I got to bring something like a little stocking stuffer or something for everybody, right? So we still see kind of maybe echoes of that even in the modern day because that's just how humans are. And where the Yule monsters come in, like to come back to all of this, is looking at it, we first see kind of the recorded versions of things like the Icelandic Yule Cat and the Yule Lad, Trampus, uh, the Julebakken, Perta. We see those recorded when there was this interest in like folklore and folk tales from the 1800s. So we're like big fast forward from the time of like pre-conversion or conversion to then. And we don't exactly know like where they came from or where they arose or why, but they all seem to have this one thing in common is that they're trying to encourage people to be charitable or generous with one another, right? 
So if you have family members, if you have community members, and you're all in this like small subsistence community, you rely on each other. And that Yule Cat fear, and it's not just like the clothing, sometimes it's like naughty children or children who are out at night that would be eaten by Grilla, the giantess who owned the Yule Cat and was the mother to the Yule Lads. You know, it was all about, hey, stay with your people, give them gifts, make sure everybody has something. And on a practical level, I can see how, you know, it's not just like the fear that the Yule Cat is going to eat grumpy old Mr. So-and-so a mile down the road. It's also like, well, you know, if Mr. So-and-so feels slighted and he doesn't have good feelings toward you and your family, What's to stop him from coming and like sneaking in and like taking your stuff? Cause he's like, well, these jerks, they didn't give me anything. They don't care about me. Why should I care about them? So it's about keeping and maintaining those bonds of um, frith or goodwill um, and reliance in the community. Yeah. Frith. That's a really interesting concept. And I think it also provides a lot of context to yes. why for instance, and this is something I, I picked up sometime a while ago. I'm not even sure if it's relevant, but the Yule cat specifically will eat people that don't have new clothes, right? Yes, that's right. And that's that's something that's a it's a uh story that's told to children that if they yeah. don't get new clothes for I guess Christmas services, then right. the Yule cat would come and get would come and eat them. And right. it's Interesting that the Yule Cat is specifically after kids who don't get new outfits. Can you maybe talk about that? Why that's culturally relevant and the importance of like having new clothes at this specific time? Yeah. And, you know, it was, it's partly obviously because Christmas and, and you talk about like the post conversion and the Christian church and everything like that. Christmas is one of like the major holidays and everybody is going to put on their best outfits and when, and here's another thing that's easy for us to forget where fast fashion is a thing and we can buy endless amounts of clothes and variety is that back in the day, like everything was done by hand. Everything was done by raising sheep or spinning or, you know, raising flax and then processing those fibers and spinning them and weaving them or knitting them or whatever. And so it represented an investment of time and labor to have good clothes. Most people would have, you know, a set of everyday clothes and then they'd have their Sunday best. And that was the special outfit that they would wear to festivals and, and specifically in what we know as the church festivals. They'd wear it to Sunday service. They'd wear it for Christmas. They'd wear it to weddings. And so having just like a new pair of socks or a new hat, that was something that made sure that people would have something that would help keep them warm and over and over the winter, but also help them potentially look good, um, look better than wearing like some dingy, worn out, hand-me-down old thing, right, to Christmas service. And it also coincides, interestingly, with some of the other Yule monsters, specifically like the idea that you needed to have all of your spinning and weaving and you know, those fiber-oriented projects done before the Yule period. So post-harvest, right, the women mm -hmm. would be processing all these fibers. They'd be, you know, spinning them. They'd be knitting and weaving them. 
And so you wanted to have all of that and you wanted to have all of your cleaning done before the Yule period, because that was really a period of rest and celebration. So another of the Yule monsters, which we see is maybe having a relation to Grilla, uh, who's the ogress or giantess who the Yule cat belongs to, is Parkta. And she's described as basically a witch and very fearsome. She sometimes leads the wild hunt, which is like the host of, of dead spirits and unhuman spirits that flies overhead in the wintertime. And she would look in on women's household and basically say, is everything clean? Is, you know, are your children clothed? Are your children fed? Is the house all nice and decorated for this festival period? And people who were lazy or slovenly or dirty, you know, she would punish them sometimes by ripping their bellies open and stuffing them with straw and dirt and rocks. So it was like this big thing, right? Yeah, there's like, there's some very grim imagery in that. But it's also yeah. like this really powerful inducement to people like, hey, don't slack off. And if we look past that myth at like the practical realities, if your household is dirty, you're more likely to have pests that will eat your food, your kids, your family are more likely to get sick which was really serious back in the day, right? And you also have, you know, you don't look good to your community. And so there's all these like practical subsistence level repercussions that that mythos, that's the, I guess, the metaphor for all those things. Yeah, and it's interesting how Perkta is sort of like, has the role of Santa Claus of knowing whether you've been naughty or nice for kids, but for moms, Yes. She's kind of like a judgy <laughs> like witch that comes around to see if you're doing your mom job as well as she thinks you should. Exactly. That's, That's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that, but I think you're right. You know, there's equally that, hey, if things are good, that's cool. It's almost, she's less like Santa Claus, but she's almost more like Krampus. Mm -hmm. And Krampus is almost like the counterpart of St. Nicholas or Santa Claus or, you know, Odin maybe, right? And yeah. so you've got, you know, St. Nick who comes along and he gives gifts to the good, but then he's you've got this counterpart, right, of Krampus who will, you know, beat and kidnap and steal and eat people who have been naughty. But that's a great point about Perkta. Yeah, let's talk about Krampus. So Tonight, actually, in Portland is the, yep. I forget which number it is, but they've been doing it for so many years. They're doing a Krampusloff. And yes. I've watched videos of Krampusloff in Germany, specifically Berlin. Berlin has a huge one. Yes. And yes. it is, looks so much fun. I mean, I don't think the Portland one gets anywhere near as big, but these people, they come out and they have these Krampus costumes that are, some of them have animatronics their full costumes like their full fursuits almost but horrifying and then if you want could you talk a little bit about the history behind the Krampus and where it comes from because I'm excited to hear about this uh, that's great Angel and you know much like the Yule Cat I did a little bit of digging into it and it's one of those things of it just evolved as a folk tradition and we're not necessarily clear what its origins might be other than they way predate Christianity, obviously. But again, it's that idea of 
showing these spirits as like real things. And so it was almost like masking and carnival. It's a way of making the concept real. And especially for like little kids, because little kids don't have the adult level of discernment and ability to say, oh, that's a guy in a fursuit. Like you're four years old and you see this guy in a big walking goat costume with a dangling tongue and chains and like a lash in a basket. And you're like, oh my God, he's going to come and get me. Right. So I can definitely see how that would be like a really influential thing for little kids. It's like, if you're naughty, the Krampus is going to come get you. So I think showing off and making that real made the threat of that or made the impact of that more real, especially for the target audience, which is kids. And now, of course, it's become a tradition. And it's one of those things of like, you know, obviously in Europe, it's been a tradition for how many centuries? We don't know. But more people here in the States are doing it as a way of kind of getting back in touch with some of those cultural roots of having a fun holiday tradition that's maybe a little different from the traditional sort of saccharine Coca-Cola, Santa Claus, capitalist fantasy that we've been sold. And it's also a participatory thing, right? Because you're going out there and either, you know, you're organizing it, you're participating in it. Or even like as somebody who's there as part of the audience, you see this and it's like, oh, wow, you know, this is something different. This is something fun. This is something cool. I want to give a, a shout out here to my friend and, and colleague, Rob Schreiber, who's been big in the revival of Erglave or kind of the Pennsylvania Deitch pagan practices. And he leads the Parade of Spirits in Philadelphia, which actually happened earlier this month. So we see this sort of revival and this return to these pagan pre-Christian cultural celebrations, I think it's a way more to bring more meaning and participation into modern life, which can be very alienated. It's a way of creating a more community connection and making something festive real for ourselves. Yeah. And I like how there's sort of a, almost like a punitive fun about the Krampus is that it is scary it isn't like I mean Santa Claus is kind of weird if you think about it and it, our cultural mores around this idea of like taking your kids and putting them on the lap of some strange man which up until I think a couple of years ago you didn't even have to have a background check to be a mall Santa Claus which kind of makes you feel a little uncomfortable but with the Krampus, there's none of that. If the Krampus is stomping around with whips and chains and scaring children and sometimes even stealing children. And the, the Berlin parade, the kids will actually get picked up by the monsters and then the parents will have to like find them at the end of the parade. <laughs> I, I feel wow. like that's a liability here in the United States for people. But for sure, you know, for we're, sure. We're a much more litigi <laughs> litigical culture than i think europe but yeah it, the krampus it's a christmas tradition that i'm really loving that is becoming more popular here in the united states because i gosh this has been almost 20 years now i for a very brief holiday season was a window painter and so i would go around and i would paint holiday business and i always wanted to do mostly the secular mythos with Rudolph and the Santa Claus and that. 
and I, I would always have people be like, well, let's see some, some what the Christian, uh, you know, the Christian idea of Christmas is. And they wanted to see the manger and they wanted to see like all these Judeo-Christian symbology. And I hated drawing that because for one, I'm not Christian and I never really was. But on top of that, it was just like, it didn't feel in alignment with what I thought of as Christmas. And now with this emergence, I guess re-emergence of this idea of a completely new holiday mythos with the Krampus and the Yule Cat and Precta and uh, all these like horrifying spooky monsters that also sort of extend a little bit of our treasured Halloween season. And yeah, like why do you think the the spooky <laughs> Christmas mythos is really starting to have a moment? Wow, that's a that's a profound question, and I certainly don't pretend to have all the answers there. Like, in terms of, I mean, I do think it's just a way of breaking free of the script we've been handed and exploring things that maybe are very new to us here in the States because people didn't always bring over all of their traditions from the old country or they say, oh, that's the old stuff. We don't want to do the old stuff. We want to do the new stuff. We want to assimilate. We want to be American, you know? And then it's also, it really is that more sort of participatory thing. It's not as scripted, right? So you've got the nativity play. And if you've ever seen one or been in one, like you've seen one, you kind of seen them all, right? It's the same story every time. But with Krampus, the only distinction is, uh, you know, with Perkta, the only they're fierce and they're wild and they're ugly and they're scary and they'll come out and get you, you know, and it really is like that you, there's so much freedom to explore and there's so much freedom to play within that framework because you don't have a set script and there's not a lot of expectations here. And it is an, of an avenue for creativity for participatory community. I mean, all these things are things that I would look at that and I would say, hey, this is what makes sense looking to this, thinking about why people might be doing this, why people might be enjoying this so much. Yeah, and also I think it is a way to enjoy being scared as yes. uh, I guess in some ways to cosplay the horror that our ancestors might've felt in these like really dark times um yeah. Yeah. one of my favorite episodes of my little pony friendship is magic is their holiday special and um the there's these like <laughs> creatures that live outside and feed on everyone's malcontent and yes. so the more that the ponies fight with each other the more these like uh, storm spirits are swirling all around them and it mm -hmm. takes like having the the Christmas spirit and the goodwill towards your fellow pony in order for it to um, calm the the storm spirits and I thought that's just like that's <laughs> such a really like secular way to approach enjoying a holiday and, you know, with with the heathens, our gods don't tell us to be good people. Like, there's not this sort of, like, punitive, you know, if, if there's not so much sin. You don't sin as far as, like, the concept of the Christians. But there are things that you can do that will be 
you know, like if you are greedy with your resources, if you don't share something, if you're, mm-hmm. you know, a, um, if, if you come and visit someone and you're a terrible guest, these are sort of the, the great offenses that you can do. Yes. And yes. Um, I think that with a Christmas mythos that sort of celebrates this idea of like, you know, we're all going to die eventually. And this is a very dangerous time. So let's have fun with it. Let's enjoy it. Let's sort of like, you know, make an almost like not so much a mockery, but just enjoying this idea of um, that the stakes were a lot higher for our ancestors. And we kind of in some ways honor that when we are incorporating these more scary monsters into our Christmas celebrations that encourage us to just have that adaptive holiday spirit that brings us all together. Yeah, and and that's a really great point. One of the other sets of kind of Yule monsters that, again, they're Icelandic, but it's the Yule lads, and they're the sons the 13 sons of Grilla the ogress who comes around and like you know stuffs children in her sack and eats them um and the Yule lads you look at their names and a lot of them are like you know spoon licker or you know sniffer after smells or skier gobbler you know they eat the yogurt or they're candle stealers you know candles used to be made out of animal fat And so if somebody was really, really hungry, they might steal and eat a candle because they were that hungry. And it was like, you know, it was was fat. It was was some protein. It was some food. Um, And really like the idea that, again, you're in this precarious environment. It's a subsistence situation. And I think by giving these activities that obviously human beings were doing like you'd sneak you'd swipe something or you'd sneak something or you you know grab a little extra for yourself it's all things that human beings would be pressed to do in those kind of environments but by externalizing that and putting it onto these naughty yule lads and giving like a specific time period um for these like troll beings to be about it was easy to say oh it must have been you know skier gobbler it must have been candle stealer instead of which one of you jerk took resource away from me or mine so it is a way also of almost like these mythical figures become like the scapegoats for this very understandable human behavior in this subsistence situation and I think in modern day particularly you know with the uh, economic situation the global situation that we have here it's also a great reminder of like you said, what it means to be a good person and uphold your obligations to your community, to your friends, to your family, because it's so easy to get like atomized and, you know, throw relationships aside. But back then there was way more of an incentive to be like, hey, I may not get along with you right now, but we're dependent on each other. We don't have that. And to some extent, that's a good thing, right? Because we don't have to put up with toxic, you know, behaviors or cruel people anymore. But at the same time, it's also like, hey, you know, there's really something to this whole sharing and reciprocity um, of being a good person with your fellow human beings. Yeah. And then, this time of like swipe left kind of connections. I know, you know, a lot of people 
that are just sort of experiencing this loneliness, right? And yeah. lack of connection. And, you know, in our modern society, everything is in some ways commoditized, you know, even our ways of interacting with each other. And so having this cultural paradigm of why it's important to have conflict repair cycles with your friends, why it's not to just like eschew all your relationships or only have these sort of superficial bonds with people that are just as easily broken. Because yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. you can do that in today because most likely you won't starve to death if you don't have right. any community. But, you know, there's also the emotional and, you know, psycho-spiritual costs yeah. of being alienated like that. And, you know, totally. the holiday traditions, I know a lot of people have a lot of baggage around them. And I definitely have had bad Christmases that made me feel very angry about the whole idea of you have to be jolly and happy during this time of year when in a lot of times it's a hard time of year for a lot of people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, for all kinds mm -hmm. of reasons. And so having something to just be reminding, especially connecting back to our ancestors of just these traditions are important. These traditions are helping us form these important bonds that do last, you know, like friendships and relationships and chosen family where we can all come together and we can celebrate it. And one of the things we do with our heathen group is on the solstice, we go around and we have a bloat, if I'm saying that correctly, right? You are. And yes. everybody takes a little bit of mead, or if you're sober, you replace it with something non-alcoholic. But we all mm -hmm. take a little bit of whatever it is, and we pour it into the community bowl, right? I forget. That has a name, right? It's a bloat bowl. A bloat yeah. bowl. And with each time we do that, we say something that we're proud about, something that we brag about. And that's a concept, especially in heathenry, that I really enjoy because so many of us are taught to basically be demure, especially SAFAB people and never brag about or talk about our accomplishments or never really. Being too prideful is considered a, quote, sin in Judeo-Christianity. And so this idea that Yes, you celebrate your accomplishments on mm -hmm. the winter solstice. Mm -hmm. You tell your community the things that you've done that you're proud about. And we all celebrate together. And I think that's a powerful way to both build bonds in the community and also just help us not feel this sense of just loneliness and isolation during this cold, often alienating time of the year for a lot of us that don't have, you know, if we've been disconnected from our families, be it over distance or over, you know, for whatever reasons that, you know, people are no longer associated with their birth family. And so having this cultural container of coming together, enjoying each other's company, and then having a chance to talk about the things you did that you're proud about with mm -hmm. your community. It's been something that I find is part of how I now think about my year and think about the traditions and how to honor this time of the year for me. And, I, and I'm really grateful that I have that because now the holidays are a lot more fun, right? They're not just like, oh, I'm not Christian. I'm 2,000 miles away from my actual family that would be making a big deal about this. So what do I even do? And this has become 
my now tradition. That's awesome. And I do think that there's a lot of positive things about the idea that you're going to come to these community feasts and everybody is going to bring something to share. And it could be that you're helping contribute to the actual feast food or drink in in a major way. It could be that you're helping with prep um, and cleanup. It could be that you're helping in whatever way, right? Or even just coming there and being a good person and looking out for other people. All of us are capable, regardless of our social or financial situation, of bringing something positive. And when you think about it over the years, you know, how have I burnished my honor? What have I done as a person that I can be proud of to share with my community? I feel like that's a really great way to also counteract a lot of some of the negative self-esteem that people can struggle with, particularly if we're alone or we're separated, or we've been told that we're whatever we are, whatever we do is not acceptable by our families to say, Hey, I can still do good. I can still be a good person. I can still provide something for my community and be an important part of it. And That to me is one of the big things about heathen morality and heathen ethos, right? It's not so much a dictum of you must do this, but what can you do that you and your ancestors and your descendants can be proud of, right? And then how does that serve your community? What kind of person are you in this network, whether it's family of blood or family of choice? Yeah, yeah. And Those traditions are one of the things that I feel a lot of times people miss because when you get disconnected from your family, like I haven't been home to celebrate the holidays with my family in 13 years. Like it's, it's been that long. And you know, my mom always made a big deal about Christmas. We'd have the big dinner. I mean, she'd decorate the house. It it was Mm -hmm. play Christmas music, you know, all the, the tropes. Usual stuff. yeah, Yeah. Usual stuff. And, you know, having lived so far away now for, for quite a lot portion of my life, it's like, well, do I even care to get a tree? Do I even care to even decorate? But having this sort of new way to come to celebrating this time of year helps Mm -hmm. to, I think, anchor our lives in something that's greater and the solstice is a is a celebration of course our ideas of like what christmas means and what the holidays mean are sort of more modern but human beings have been celebrating the solstices for thousands and thousands of years perhaps even right there could be in a point where before we were truly homo sapiens sapiens we were uh still observing this particular important solar cycle. I mean, this is what the pyramids are built to align with. This is what Stonehenge is built to yep. align to. Is Newgrange. Right? Yep. Yeah, Newgrange. Yep. Yep. These are all very important solar events that human yes. beings have been celebrating. And, you know, of course, that all goes to this very important cultural paradigm that's sort of across cultures of the return of the sun. And of course, the only places that you don't see a lot of emphasis on this particular time of the year is closer to the equator where this would not be noticed as much. 
But definitely in the Northern Hemisphere, the return of the sun and the sun being able to have longer and longer days where you would have more and more light was mm -hmm. something always to be celebrated and marked. And yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, especially like the further, like you said, the further away you get from the equator, the more noticeable that shift in the amount of light or amount of darkness can be. I've heard from people, whether they're heathen or not, that it's really difficult to celebrate Christmas in Miami or Costa Rica because it just doesn't have the impact that it mm -hmm. does. But above the 45th parallel, it's very noticeable, you know, it's extremely dramatic and very pronounced. And there's this whole other subject that we could go on about, which is how do we adapt these kind of animus practices mm -hmm. to different regions of the world? Because yeah. now there's people who are practicing heathens in Costa Rica, in Mexico, in equatorial Africa, you know, in, in the Southern hemisphere where the seasons are completely reversed. I thought it was, it's really cute, but also super weird that in Australia, they're celebrating Christmas and you have Santa in a fursuit on like Bondi beach in the middle of like 95 degree weather. Like, what is that about? They're trying to align with that calendar for the Northern hemisphere, which is exactly reversed in the yeah. Southern hemisphere. So yeah, I, it always kind of like makes me scratch my head about Australian Christmas. And of course, you know, there's a Frank Sinatra song about celebrating Christmas in Hawaii. So yeah, I mean, we're just like taking these mostly Northern Hemisphere winter holidays and kind of stamping them all over the planet as a sort of way to, you know, just create this cultural construct of the holidays for late stage capitalism and the, the, the global economy. But yeah, how do we take what is more ancient and almost authentic way of honoring this time of year and bringing it into if you say live in phoenix arizona or miami like like what are your thoughts about that wow and you know i feel like this ties in with that aspect of animus practice that we maybe haven't really addressed directly mm -hmm. here right is the idea of paying attention to the natural cycles where you are so how does the weather change you know because we do still have seasons you know the the storms may be worse and the weather may be weirder but we do still have seasonal shifts that you can perceive animals certainly notice them plants certainly notice them in different parts of the world that are more close to the equator they'll oftentimes mark seasons by which plants are blooming or which plants are dormant or when the rains come or when they don't and so being attuned to those sorts of cycles is is a great way to find a pace that mm -hmm. helps you be more in touch with the world around you. When it comes to something like the, the winter solstice, the Yule holidays, I feel like that's more getting into the human realm because we're mm -hmm. capable of constructing these, these imaginary palaces and these structures by agreement, community structures by agreement. We yeah. all agree. It's like Yuletide. It's, it's Christmas time. A side note here is that Yule is still what they call it in the Northern countries, right? It's a like good Yule. You know, it's not Merry Christmas. They call it Yule still, even, even today. But that's more, I think, a way of saying, okay, well, it's this time of year that I'm going to make this observance, right? I'm going to talk about what kind of 
things I've done in my community that I can be proud of. I'm going to come together with other people. We're going to have a feast. We're going to celebrate. You know, maybe we're going to sing songs or play games or dance, and that's going to be meaningful for us. So creating your own tradition that kind of also helps fit in with the timing of the overcultural tradition at this time of year. I think is a way to adapt to that. And maybe it doesn't look the same for everybody. And it really, it shouldn't. It yeah. were, there, there's so much diversity and there's so much wonderful things about regional and cultural differences. I think it's just important when, you know, they bring us together rather than be right. used as an excuse to, to divide us apart. Absolutely. And, you know, there are other, of course, winter holidays happening that are yes. from all kinds of different cultures. You oh, know? yes. Yes. There's lots of, you know, of course, Hanukkah started, I think, two days ago. So Hanukkah's going on. I've celebrated Hanukkah before. So There's Kwanzaa, which is also yep. kind of this newer holiday that celebrates African ancestors and African traditions that yep. I also have celebrated before with friends. And yeah, in a lot of ways, coming to the idea of let's just celebrate. However, celebration takes place. However, you feel called to come together with your community, your friends, your chosen family and celebrate. And I think, yeah, that's sort of the way I feel that the holidays can help buoy us in this, you know, otherwise pretty dark time. I mean, let's just be real. We're living in a time of war and also you know there's the whole fear of oh we might have a dictator you know um for we might lose democracy in the united states you know we don't know there's just so much to be just feeling completely overwhelmed about and yeah sometimes it can be hard to be like oh and yeah we're supposed to be celebrating this christmas time holiday or you know that i don't even feel connected to and maybe there's a way that you can bring that to make it meaningful to you in a way that is still authentic, even if you are no longer enmeshed, enmeshed in these more overcultural practices and just enjoying and making your own holidays, however that looks like. Yeah. 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 I think, again, like it's so important to be going out and just participating in some kind of community thing. There's public events all over the place. I know the Columbia Grove ADF in our area, they do public rituals and yeah. they're doing Saturnalia as one of the Indo-European traditions for Yule this year for solstice. And then there's also just public celebrations like the Portland Winter Nights Festival where everything, you know, they they light up sculptures and there's you know, singing and there's different events. So get out there and just enjoy it. Even if you feel like you don't know what to do, or you're just sort of on the periphery of things, making these fun traditions. I had to look up the reference just now, but Dylan Thomas is the poet who wrote the poem with a line, you know, rage, rage against the dying of the light. And rage is seen in our common culture as anger, you know, of, you know, violence. But rage or or madness was also sometimes just seen as like ecstatic frenzy yeah and here we get the odin tie-in again right of like the the master of the wild hunt is you're going out and you're just putting it all out there and raging wildly to party it's not necessarily about 
being angry or violent. It's about going out there and just pouring all of yourself into this wild ecstasy of something. And you can do it in the most innocent way, like a little kid just running around a winter lights festival at like zoo nights here at the zoo. Or you can do it as an adult at like a more grown-ups ritual where you're all, you're having a rager, right? You're having a huge party. So all of those things are ways to meaningfully build connection and build meaning and not let all of that potential darkness in the world bring us down or drag us out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a good, good way to end our special Yule Day, Yuletide special with you. Thank you so much, Dara, for coming on and talking about this subject. And yeah, I always enjoy having conversations with you like this because I learned so much. And then it's one of the things that I'm just really grateful for. And yeah, and then yeah, having that gratitude, just mm -hmm. to close this out as part of whatever holiday tradition is just it's being grateful for the friends and the community that we have. And I'm definitely grateful for y'all and the, the wonderful heathen community out here in the Pacific Northwest that I have found. So yeah, thank you. Well, thanks, Angel. Thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. You know, you always bring such a fresh and different perspective to my own. And you ask me these questions and you ask me for stuff and you really prompt me to think and re-examine stuff that I'm like, well, you know, I never really thought about that much, but that's a great question. So. I'm also thankful for you and, you know, everything you do with the Science Witch podcast, Wild Witches of the Willamette, um, and of course, for my heathen community and all my other communities here. And I hope that everyone listening has a bright and cheerful or dark and ecstatic Yuletide, whatever makes you merry. All right. Thank you so much to Dara for coming on to the show to talk about winter monsters and holiday mythos and being our featured guest for this year's Yule episode. It's become our tradition now to have a theme for each holiday season, and so we hope you have enjoyed this year's theme with the Yule Cat and maybe found a new holiday tradition to add to your own celebrations. Yes, and we here have our own Yule Cat to celebrate, who is incidentally also going to be the recipient of most of our holiday gift giving because he's not just our pet, he's our child. His name is Gaston. Yes, and Gaston will eventually be incorporated into a sticker, along with Inku's beloved fur babies, Verso and Lamas, since my fur children have now been featured in two of our stickers for the sticker exchange. And of course, it will be something to do with the fact that he is such a fancy little dude who always has his tux on. Oh, he's such a sweetie. In the meantime... <laughs> In the meantime, if you'd love to support our podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter, which is the main way we are financially supporting this project. We are starting to get a lot more activity over on Discord, and Angel has been coming up with some Patreon-only episodes of both Deity Deep Dives and a special Who's in Bloom episode on the Christmas Cactus, featuring original music by me. You can access this... You can access this bonus content and lots of other various offerings, including PowerPoint presentations, recorded workshops, and recipes, all for only $1 a month. At the $5 a month level, we have our sticker exchange where we feature art of deities as well as our pets and other entities by members of our Science Witch Art Coven. 
this coming year, we have a lot of exciting new ideas for what next to offer, and we will be soliciting feedback from our Patreon supporters by way of Discord to get ideas of what deities y'all would like to see in sticker form. We are also going to be expanding the products we are going to be offering our designs on, including tapestries, decals, and maybe a pin design. So be sure to check us out on Etsy in case you missed any of our stickers from previous months or you don't want to be part of a subscription-based service but still want to support the podcast. Then at our highest level of support, we have the Science Witch Coven which means you'll get the stickers from all of the previous tiers, as well as the other perks, including getting a tarot reading over Zoom from Angel and having your birth chart read. We are coming up with more ideas to expand our offerings at this level, including online meetups over Discord where we get feedback or even collaborate with coming up with new episodes. This is a great way to really take a more active role in both ensuring this project is resourced and also getting to help direct the creative process as we're going to be opening up for more collaborative efforts in the coming year. And as always, thank you to everyone out there who is listening. We just received a really lovely email from a listener all the way in Northern Europe, and this sort of communication really fuels us, and it keeps us going with this project. So thank you to Doa for for your really kind email. And thank you out there to all of our listeners and supporters out there that let us be the voices inside your head. Mm. Also, this year we are going to really try to pivot more into YouTube content now that my brother has an Adobe Premiere subscription. And I've gotten some feedback on how to make our videos more compelling, interesting, and also uh, increase in the algorithm. So if you're a YouTube fan, be sure to check us out over on YouTube. Finally, plans are underway to host the next Trans Telethon. Angel has already connected with the venue and we're already working on finalizing a date for the end of August. This time we're going to be having more drag performances and improv, and yours truly will be supplying a good amount of the musical accompaniment, along with some help with my friends and family. This year's Trans Telethon will once again be a benefit for Rainbow Railroad, and will be streamed. But we are going to have a slightly different format, and it will be an homage to Steven Universe. So stay Mm -hmm. tuned for more information forthcoming in the new year. I'm so excited. I am talking to a venue here locally in Salem. So, and it's a venue I love that does a lot of LGBTQIA events. So I really am just, I'm so excited to have the next trans telethon be bigger and more exciting. And instead of having bands play the musical accompaniment and the musical talent will be you, Ruby, and your chosen friends and family that you bring in on this collaboration. So yeah, very excited. If you want to find us on the social medias, we are on threads, Instagram, and Facebook as the Science Witch Podcast. You can also still find us on whatever it is that is the social media site that's probably going to die in 2024, but it is once called Twitter at Science Witch Pod. If you want to check out the show notes and transcripts from this episode, see our website at sciencewitchpodcast.com. Finally, if you don't want to do anything on social media, which is totally fair, you can still reach us on the email, the email, what, what, the email, at questions at sciencewitchpodcast.com. 
Until next time, live long and prosper. And blessed be. And happy, happy holidays. holidays.